All right, let's turn to Jonah chapter one. We're going to study the story of Jonah the next few weeks, and most of us have some familiarity with it. I was thinking this week, there's a few stories in the Bible that people who are not Christians or who don't have a, you know, a history of Christianity are probably familiar with. Jonah's probably one of those stories. When, when you, so I had a couple thoughts about going into this. One is, this is to me one of the easier minor prophets to study because it's a narrative. Not necessarily easy in the sense that it's, it's shallow, but I mean, uh, just it's a story. It's telling a story, and we love we're, we're story people. You know, all cultures are story cultures. Every culture you go into is a story culture, and so um, anyway, I think that makes Jonah a little easier to tackle. Uh, there are some pretty big theological themes, and tonight the main theme we're going to look at and focus on and talk about is the theme of God's providence. God's providence. We're going to talk about providence. Another word that we use for that kind of interchangeably is sovereignty. So God's sovereignty, God's providence. We're going to look at that tonight in the text. Um, I, I was thinking about my father-in-law who went to be with the Lord a year ago, and uh, he was an old school preacher. He was uh, an evangelist. So if you're not familiar with church uh, terminology, an evangelist is a person in that context that goes around and preaches. And usually an evangelist only have a few sermons, but they're really good, they're well illustrated, and they can just tell them masterfully, you know. And he would, and I loved, I never really got tired of listening to his, he had about eight sermons that were his main sort of um, index of sermons when he would go preach a revival or something like that. But anyway, he is old school, he would always tell preacher jokes. And if you don't know what a preacher joke is, it's kind of like a dad joke, but it's got like a churchy twist on it. And so I thought I'd start with his favorite preacher joke. Um, I heard him tell it at least a thousand times, and I would chuckle and giggle every single time. He told this story, and uh, I don't remember the names of the characters, but it was these two brothers, and they were really bad people. They, they robbed, and they swindled and they you know they bootlegged moonshine and they just were bad people and uh, they never worked an honest day in their life they were the most conniving two people well this new preacher comes to town and uh, he takes over to church you know as as the pastor and one of the brothers dies well them boys ain't never been to church they ain't never went to church not a time but uh, the one, the, the surviving brother, he goes to this new young preacher and he says, hey, I want you to do my brother's funeral, but you better, you better say that he was a good man. You better say he was a good man. Well, this preacher, he's like, this is a conundrum because you can't, if you're a preacher, you can't lie. You ain't supposed to lie no matter who you are. But if you're a preacher up here, you definitely don't want to lie because there's some stories in the Bible about stuff like that. So, this young preacher is like, well, I'm not going to get up there and lie, you know. What am I going to do? And everybody he talked to said, you don't want to cross this guy. These are bad dudes. They've, they've hurt some people. They might have even killed some people. You don't want to mess with them. So this preacher gets up there. Finally, the day of the funeral comes, and the one brother sitting right here on the front row, and the and, uh, preacher gets up there, and he says, well, he says, uh, we're here today to remember the life of old Pete, you know, and and Pete, we all know he was a swindling, conniving, womanizing, bootlegging, drug dope smoking. He was a scoundrel. But compared to his brother, he was a good man. 
<laughs> and Kahuna would tell that joke, and I always, I always loved it, you know. But when you, when you, there's this old saying that goes like this. If you can't say something nice about somebody, don't say nothing at all. Jonah is a person that as we work through the story, I'm not going to lie, it is very difficult for me to find redeeming characteristics in this guy. It's difficult. But, and, and, and as we spend a few weeks in it, I think you're going to feel the same thing. And, I, and I, I don't say that in any condescending or condemnatory way because this man was, is called a man of God. He's, he's recorded one other time in Scripture. He's a prophet of God who goes before a king called Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was the king of Israel at a time when Israel was in rebellion. And, and it was actually near the end of Israel's prominence and, and existence as an autonomous nation under God. And so we know he's a man of God. I don't ever, you know, there, I, I don't want to speak ill against someone, but as you work through it, I think what, what for me has been very personal about this story is I see God use a man who is so flawed. And I realize in that it is the message, not the man, it is the giver of the message, not the man. It is a sovereign God who uses what, what the writer in the New Testament calls jars of clay. We're vessels that God would use. So I hope you'll keep that in mind as we work through the story. It's a very familiar story, and we'll just we'll dive right in um, and just work through chapter 1. I wanna, what I want to do, the way I want to break this down, we're going to drive at the main idea of God's providence. And as we work through these 17 verses, I want to see five evidences of the providence of God. So there are going to be five places that we're going to pause and see the providence of God. If you're a little unsure of what the providence of God is or what that means, we're going to define it and then unpack that a little bit at the end of these five things. Okay, so to make sure that we as a church sort of understand what are we talking about when we talk about the providence of God, the sovereignty of God? But, but first, we'll work through the story and look at these, these five acts or evidences of the providence of God. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So here we see the first act of God's providence, providence, and it's in those first two verses, and it is that the Lord prepares a message of judgment, but it's also a message of salvation for a pagan people. And he then commissions a man who he knows will be disobedient to deliver the message. God's providence is the driving power behind all salvation and deliverance from sin. He has the power to save, and he has finished the gospel that saves, and he gives us a future hope and promise of that salvation. So we see in that first couple verses the providence of God in that God has the authority to take this group of people in a city called Nineveh. Now, a little background real quick. Nineveh was the capital at one point of the Assyrian Empire. It was a capital city. If you want to look at a modern-day map, this is right beside modern-day Mosul, Iraq. Okay? So, ancient city uh, known for terrible atrocities. One of the things I love about archaeology um, is not only that they inspired the Indiana Jones saga, which has taken a terrible 
turn south recently. Um, but but I love I, I love archaeology because in archaeology what we find is strong strong historical evidence for Scripture. I will tell you this: as a Christian, you never have to fear history or science disproving what God has spoken to be true. It's not going to happen. It will not happen. It, if it was going to happen, it would have happened. It's not going to happen. In fact, what archaeologists and historians, as well as physicists, astrophysicists, and scientists are telling us is that everything is moving towards at least an intelligent designer. Moving towards that, which is what's prominent right now. Why? Because science always is going to ultimately point people to what God says is true. So in Nineveh, we have now these archaeological digs that historically are proving that these people were terrible. Stacks of skulls, and they'd done, they, 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 there, there are uh, some of the kings in this um, people group are known to have dismembered and disfigured people. Spencer showed us pictures, uh, old pictures, um, drawings, and, and sculptures of, you know, where they had the hook through the jaw. They run the hook behind the teeth, under the tongue, down through the jaw, and they would hook these people, and that's the way they would move them around from place to place. When they would disperse a people group, they would come in, they'd take over a people group, they would disperse those people, which is ultimately what they would do to God's people, the Jews. This is a historic city and a historic people, but in the first act of God's providence, we see God interact with the evil and the wickedness of man. And that's at the core of the gospel, that God interacts with the wickedness of creation. He interacts with the wickedness of humanity. And he does so by commissioning a man called the man of God who's a historic person named Jonah. And he says, here's the word of the Lord, take it to these people in Nineveh. God is going to work to either bring judgment and condemnation or salvation and forgiveness to a people. Keep reading. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. This is fascinating because if you look at the cadence of the words in, chap- in verse 2 and verse 3. See how at the beginning of verse 2, it says, and this is the word of the Lord, arise, go to Nineveh. And then at the beginning of verse 3, it says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. It's very, it's, it's very mind-blowing to think about what Jonah is doing here. I read um, one, uh, one historian and commentator said this would be such a foreign concept to, uh, to, to a people who served a king, to think of a commission from a king to a loyal and faithful servant who then in that same moment turns and goes in the opposite direction, um, which is what Jonah does. Verse 4, but the Lord, Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. It's going to bring us to the second act of God's providence. Now, Jonah goes into this ship. If you were going to look at a map, nobody knows 100% where Tarshish was, and, but, but there's a pretty common agreement among historians and theologians that it was probably in modern-day Spain. And so today, uh, in our family devotions this morning, we Googled uh, the distance from Mosul, Iraq, to Madrid, Spain, just, just for because, right? 30, it's like 3,300 miles. What Jonah was doing is he was just going the farthest distance he could go. 
Did he really think? He's a, he's a prophet of God. Does he think he can escape the hand of God? No, I don't believe so. Does he think he can leave the presence of God? I don't believe so. Any Christian, one of the things that as Christians we hold to is the omnipresence of God. The idea that God is everywhere. The, the psalmist says, if I descend into Sheol, you are there, into the grave. If I ascend to the heights of the heavens, you're there. There's no place we go that God is not there. God is in everything. He is, he is in all places. So I don't think Jonah is fleeing in that sense that he thinks he can escape God. I think what Jonah's doing is simply rebelling against God. And sometimes, in fact, most of the time, what true rebellion is, is when we reject the authority of God's word and we go in the direction that we choose, usurping the authority of God in self-autonomy. In other words, we say, I say, I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do. I know the answer. I know the truth, but I'm going to do what I want to do. So Jonah's going now, what, so why would Jonah flee and go in that direction? It's like going from here to L.A., right? But I think even in context, okay, think about this in context. What Jonah's doing is not like going from here to L.A. It's like going from here to, you get a globe. Young people, you know what a globe is? <laughs> it's, like, it's like Google Earth in 3D, legit 3D, you know, but you've got to use a magnifying glass. You can't use two fingers to do this on a globe, all right? You, and so if you take a globe and you, you figure out where you're at and you go exactly to the opposite, that's the farthest point you could go on this planet. And that's where Jonah would have gone. He's going as far from where God's telling him to go as he could go. Now, why would he do this? Well, I think, I think there's a couple of things. One, when I was raised pretty much being taught that it was because he was afraid, he was scared of the Ninevites, they were terrible people. And I think that there's no doubt in my mind those people probably freaked him out. The second thing is, it says it's a great city. This was a massive city. It was a long journey to that city. When he gets to that city, what's he going to do? What can one man do? It's an overwhelming task. So there's a fear of the Ninevites. It's an overwhelming task. But the reason Jonah turns and goes away from the presence of the Lord, he tells us why. In chapter 4, verse 2, this is after the people of Nineveh, spoiler alert, they get saved. After the people of Nineveh in chapters 3 and 4 turn to the Lord, he prays to the Lord in chapter 4, verse 2, and says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. In other words, the reason I was going to Tarshish is I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew there was a chance, a good chance, that God was going to save Nineveh, and he didn't want him to do it. He didn't want him to do it. And I think all of us, if we're honest, can understand where in the heart that comes from. There are people, maybe people groups, maybe individuals, that it is very difficult to look at them and desire for the grace of God to be extended to them. It's good self-examination for us. But that gets us to that second act of God's providence, which is seen in verse 4. It says, Yahweh hurls a great storm on the sea. I love the word hurls. Um, it's an it's, it's aggressive act. It's a picture of an aggressive environment. Listen to how it describes this, this uh, storm on the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. It's literally about to tear the boat apart. The Lord can literally control the weather, but this should be seen as a kindness and mercy of the Lord. Here's the irony. 
Jonah is sleeping and the pagan sea captain awakens him in the story and pleads with him to cry out to his God. Frank Page says this, perhaps the captain did recognize the possibility that Jonah's God, Yahweh, might be the initiator of the storm because he was being ignored by Jonah, slumbering, needed to be consulted also. Listen, listen to verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God and hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. It's a fascinating. Here's, here's, an obs- here's a thought. That in, this is a thought in my Christian life. My brother said something to me one time that is, has clicked. You know, remember that uh, verse in Philippians 2? In Philippians, when, when Paul says that as Christians, we have a peace that passes all understanding. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you should not have felt peace, but as a Christian, God gave you peace? Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a loss of a loved one. Maybe it's something terrible that's going on at work. Maybe it's a wayward loved one who's rejected the gospel, and you should be in turmoil. You shouldn't be able to sleep at night, but somehow God brings a peace over you. As a Christian, if you've experienced that, that is a beautiful gift from the Lord that unbelievers do not experience. They don't experience it. But most of us probably have also experienced what Jonah is experiencing here, which is a different kind of peace. He has gone to sleep in his rebellion. And so I think we have to be careful when we say things like, well, the Lord's given me peace about this because I believe it's possible in the human experience to live in rebellion against God and find a way to live comfortably, comfortably with that, to be hardened in your sin. I think Jonah is in rebellion. Okay, to, to paint a graphic picture, the storm is so bad that the mariners are freaking out. These are guys, these are guys who make a living on these waters and they're freaking out. When I was about the fifth grade, I got my head split wide open for about the third time. And it was another round of stitches. You know, it was like, it was like on, up here and it went back across the crown of my head. And I remember going in, this doctor, his name was Dr. Dennis. And I remember going to see Dr. Dennis. He was our pediatrician. And I remember this was over in Canton or Waynes. This was in Waynesville. I'd go in there. And I remember he went to hit me with some lid- lidocaine. Is that the thing where they do the local numbing? And when he hit it, he punched something in there. We'd got her all clogged up, you know. And he punched something, and it, this is going to be gross. It just kind of went and just spritzed blood all over his face. And I remember he went, oh, gross. And I remember thinking, aren't you a doctor? <laughs> Didn't you choose this vocation? You know, I, I, I'm imagining a police officer. That's, that's, that's trying to go into a situation and apprehend a criminal, and he goes, oh, he's just so tough and grumpy. I think I'm going to leave him alone, you know? Like, like, like the, 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 fact that, the fact that the mariners are freaking out, tells, it tells me in my imagination, this is a storm, literally what we would call a hand of God storm. Have you ever heard that phrase, it's a hand of God activity? Or, or moment. So what's happening is God is not only, I believe, I believe this, theologically, not only has God hurled the storm on these people, but the very presence of God in judgment has invoked a deep spiritual fear, I believe, it's safe to say, in these men. 
It's not just, oh, it's storming, I'm scared. It's, there's something deeply spiritual happening here, and they feel it, and they sense it. It's the hand of God at work to the point that in verse 6, the captain comes to him and says, you got to wake up and call out to your God. I mean, they're, it's so bad they're throwing their cargo overboard. This is how they make a living. they got to go all the way to Spain if that's the case. They're giving up their livelihood to save their lives. Here's an observation. Something that stands out to me in the, is the contrast between the way these unbelievers responded to Yahweh and the way Jonah has responded. I think we need to be reminded as a side note here that our unbelieving friends, neighbors, and coworkers are paying attention. Opportunities will arrive in our lives in the, nat- in the natural flow of day-to-day life. We need to be ready to give an answer for the, for the hope that is in us. Jonah gives that answer as we're getting ready to see. Verse 7, they said to one another, come, let's cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation and where do you come from? What's your country? What are the, uh, what, of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Well, you talk about a moment. I fear Yahweh who made this ocean. But it's, but it's contradicting because he's not behaving like one who fears the Lord. In in that, we see the third act of God's providence. It's in the casting of the lots in verse 7. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. One of the principles of Scripture that is rarely talked about, but that I love, is when God works through the pagan or secular channels that unbelievers use. God uses a witchcraft voodoo practice to point these men to Jonah, which ultimately points them to the Lord, which results in the fourth act of God's providence. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men now knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you? that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew worse. It grew more and more tempestuous against them. This is fascinating. These men, okay, let me see if I wrote anything about this here. No, I didn't. Jonah is so locked down in his rebellion, he would rather commit suicide than repent and go on God's business. You ever try to talk to somebody as a believer, you're concerned and you care about this person, you're saying this path you're on is destructive, you know God's not going to let you get on this. I'm talking about believers. You're talking to a believer, a Christian, someone who's put their faith in Jesus, confessed that he is Lord, and they're on a path of destruction. Maybe it's a path of adultery, maybe it's a path of addiction, maybe it's a path of dishonesty, or whatever. But you know that they're hardening their heart, and you plead with them. And it's like, there is no negotiating. There is no reasoning. It's a, it's, again, it's a good warning for every one of us to go. The human heart 
even I believe in regeneration by the Lord is capable still within the will and the, and the capacity God gives us to obey and worship, capable of yielding to the flesh and going down a path that's very destructive. A lot of us might even have a testimony like that. As a Christian, I made decisions that brought great consequence and destruction in my life. We see it with David in his adultery and murder. The rest of his life, he deals with the consequences. He lives with the consequences of his life. And so Jonah, at this point, says to these guys, these guys are pagans. They're crying out to their pagan deities. They're, these guys are like praying to these demonic sea gods. Can you imagine? It's like got to be chaotic. You got the storm, and then they're praying to these gods that if they're real, they're demons, and God has silenced them. They're casting lots, and it's Jonah, and he's like, throw me in the sea, it'll quit. They're like, no, no, and they're rowing. They're all on the oars. They're rowing. They're like, we're not going to do that. That is not right. Their morality at this point is greater than his spirituality. It's such a weird and and bizarre moment that I, I wonder, I just wonder, in this moment, if he would be willing to repent of his sin before the Lord, what would have happened? We turn the ship around. We go back to Joppa. Okay, God. Because have you ever heard that saying, God is a God of second chances? This is what Jonah's telling us in chapter 4. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. But he's like, he'd rather die. Throw me into the ocean. Verse 14 brings us to that fourth act of providence. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and, let us, and lay not on us his innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. The fourth act of providence is that these pagans confess the sovereignty and might of Yahweh. God has revealed himself to these pagan men in such a way that they confess him as Lord. In their declaration, a group of pagan and hardened sailors you ever heard the term cuss like a sailor? We got some, some Navy guys in here. They're probably, they could probably tell stories that make us blush, you know, like that's a rough lot. And they're brought to confession of Yahweh as Lord and God. These men's lives are changed by the power of God's saving and providential grace. This is to me the most beautiful moment in the story. If you've ever questioned or lost hope that God could change the heart of someone and draw them to himself by revealing his power and saving grace, then find hope in Jonah chapter 1, verse 14, and in the declaration that these men make. And in their declaration, we see repentance over sin and confession of the saving power. Let's look at it again. Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. There's one of my favorite things to witness in ministry is next month we have a conference coming up called Be Strong. It's a men's conference. We do one in September. We do one in March. There's something incredibly heart-stirring and moving about 500 men singing songs about Christ as their king exalting him, worshiping him. And we don't get weird and try to get guys to hug and cry. and Like we just preach the gospel and worship God through song. It's real, it is so simple. Like our strategy for that weekend is the easiest strategy of the year. The rest of the year we're doing stuff with teenagers. You gotta be creative. 
got to think, got to hold their attention. It's the TikTok, YouTube short generation. How do we keep them? With these men, it's like preach the gospel really hard and straightforward, and then let's just respond in song. And to hear those men worship God. Imagine what is this scene when a ship full of battle-hardened sailors who have worshipped demonic pagan deities are singing, Christ the Lord is risen today. You know, like a mighty fortress is our God. Their hearts are changed. Their confession is real. God has worked in spite of Jonah, not even through him. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. I don't even know what to do with that scene. Is it, is it, is the boat up? And I've never been out there and I've never been in a crazy storm on a boat. You know what? I guarantee you one way, you will never be in a storm like this. Don't go in a ship out in the ocean. That's been my, that's been my deal. It ain't gonna happen to me. I ain't getting in a storm like this. And just, Like, they just exalted and confessed Yahweh as Lord. I wonder if, it's, if it just shocked them. It worked. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, please, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be comical. But just, I'm, I'm caught in that moment. The chaos of the first, you know, of, of those 10 verses is like, they plead with God. They take the oars and then they throw them in and that's it. Okay, so how do they respond? The men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They're like, this is my God. We're going to worship him. We're going to sacrifice to him. And through Jonah's disobedience, before he ever gets to Nineveh, God changes a pagan group of sailors by the power of his saving gospel. It's awesome. I mean, they make sacrifices and vow their lives in allegiance to Yahweh. In that fourth act of providence, the men confess sovereignty and the might of Yahweh. And verse 17 is the final act of God's providence. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I, the final and, and the fifth and final act of providence, God prepared the fish. I wonder, okay, my imagination. They throw him in. I'm picturing, I'm picturing just, you know, a couple guys on the wrists. Guy on one. Are we, are we going on three? Or <laughs> is it one, two, three? Or is it like one, two? It I don't know how that went, but they throw him overboard. Calm sea. Do they see the humpback of whatever this monster fish is? It's bigger than their boat that just, I don't know. We're not told. How long was he descending? Did it scoop him up down there on the, I don't know. But it's an intense moment. A lot of people believe that Jonah died because of Jesus pointing to the sign of Jonah. I don't know. But I want to I finish our time
as we've walked through these five acts of God's providence. I want to just finish our time with a little lesson quickly, and we'll make this available to you because I'm not going to elaborate on this. I want to give you three aspects of the providence of God. Let me define the providence of God for you. The providence of God is defined this way. God is continually involved with all created things in a personal and sustaining way and will ultimately fulfill all of his purposes. God is continually involved with all created things in a personal and sustaining way and will ultimately fulfill all of his purposes. So I want to give you three categories of God's providence. Now, some theologians will squeeze these into two. John Calvin lumped the first two together. We're going to look at them in three quick categories. The first one is this, three categories of God's providence. The first one is preservation. Preservation. This is the idea that God keeps all things he created in existence. God created the mountains and the stars and the universe, the expanse of the universe. He created, and and people will say, well, the universe is expanding. No, the universe is shrinking. Whatever it's doing, God's the one sustaining it. He's the one preserving it. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1, 17. Colossians 1, 17 says this. Can you pull that up? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The the providence of God in preservation is is that he's holding all things together. And Job 34, 14, it says this. If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath. We got the next verse. I 100% promise you that's not their fault. Can you pull the next verse up? In my mind right now, as, as I'm flushing red in my face, I'm uh, singing the Old Testament books of the Bible song so I can find Job. <laughs> you know that song, Bradley? Genesis, excellence, if he should set his heart to it and gather himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would turn to dust. If God just said, I'm going to gather it like all flesh would turn to dust. Rob talked about this tonight when Jesus said, and everybody, like in one moment, whatever he was doing to sustain their very existence, he just, let me take my hand off this for a second. So the providence of God in preservation is that he keeps all things he created in existence. Number two, the providence of God in concurrence. Second category or aspect of God's providence is his concurrence. This is the idea that God cooperates with the things he has created run through this quickly. We won't, we won't look at these verses, but you can jot them down. Inanimate things like wind and rain and snow, God cooperates with those things. Animals, events that seem random, which we saw in the casting of the lots. Things that men or creatures do of their own will and volition, but that God is engaging with, like growing crops, drilling a well. You drill a well, man is engaging with that. God is concurrent with that, and the water is provided by God, but God's interacting with that. Same as with crops and the planting and harvesting of crops. Kings, governments, nations. According to the psalmist, every aspect of our lives. What is man that you are mindful of him, he would write. 
under this heading and subject, we could talk for days, but to just scratch the surface and get you thinking and studying, the second aspect of the providence of God is his concurrence. It's the idea that God is cooperating with all things he's created. And third and final aspect of the providence of God is his governance. This might clear up some questions from the first two. It's the idea that God is working all things ultimately according to his plan and the distinctions of his will. Romans eleven thirty six 36, it says, we're from him and through him and to him are all things. God's working all things according to, to him be glory forever, all things according to his ultimate will. This is where we, when we wrestle with the problem of evil, we lean into this idea that God has governance over the evil and wicked of the world. And in some way, he's going to one day bring peace or judgment. And we're going to enter into a season where there will be no evil, no sin, no brokenness. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the the presence of his glory with great joy. God's governance in the life of a believer is that he's going to one day bring us through and present us blameless. It's the hope is that this, whatever you got to go through in this life is not final. God's doing a work. He who started a work will be faithful to complete it. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord and Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have been given and promised an inheritance that awaits us. Peter writes it's kept in heaven for us. As Christians, we can lean into the providence of God knowing that ultimately it was through his providence that he saved us, but also that one day, ultimately, God will bring all things to justice and peace. The story of Jonah, a man who would run away from God, and we can see in these five moments of God's providence that God's still in control. And it should give us hope. It should shake us a little bit to know you can't run away from God. You're, you cannot usurp your own will over the will of God, but you can live in disobedience and rebellion and have to suffer consequences. But God is ultimately bringing about his purpose. God's, no, Job writes, no plan of yours will ever be thwarted in Job 42. No plan of God's will ever be thwarted. But we should hope in this. Let's hope in the future we have in God. A God who has the power to save even over, above, and against man's greatest rebellions. We can receive mercy and peace rather than judgment if we just put our trust in the sovereign and saving Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we dig into the story of Jonah, the life of Jonah, this man that is is at every turn, he seems to go the wrong direction or do the wrong thing or exert the wrong intention. Lord, we get to see in that that you're greater than all of that. That even in, in, even in the brokenness of the Assyrian Empire and the city of Nineveh, the rebellion of the Israelite nations, the rejection of your instruction by Jonah, that you're saving pagan sailors in a city that, that, that would have never known salvation had you not brought the gospel to them, had you not brought the news of who you are and the call and demand for repentance to them. Thank you, Lord, that in your providence you hold all things together. You give us life. In you we move and live and have our being. And even when the world seems to be completely out of control 
And even when our lives seem to be completely upside down, we can lean into you because we know that you're working all things together for our good and your glory, and we can rest in that. You are worthy of our praise because you are a God who, though out of reach, made yourself knowable to us through your special revelation, through the Word of God, the way you've revealed yourself to us, and you've drawn us and invited us into providential relationship. You're worthy of our praise and our allegiance, and I pray that we'd give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.